Good morning. And if you have your Bibles, please turn to the book of 1 Timothy. We're going to be starting in chapter 6, verse 3. It's Paul's concluding instructions to Timothy in this first letter. As we've talked previously, Paul had sent Timothy, who was kind of his, uh, his apprentice, somebody he had, he had mentored in the faith. He had met Timothy's family and been impressed with their faithfulness to God and had kind of adopted Timothy as, as a son to work, in him, work with him in the ministry. And so Timothy was very familiar with Paul's thought and Paul's desires, and Paul sent Timothy as his representative to the church in Ephesus to address some problems that were going on there. And he wrote this letter to instruct Timothy what to do there. And last week we looked at his instructions to Timothy regarding the character of the people that should be leading this work in the town of Ephesus. And now we're going to get to uh, his kind of concluding instructions to Timothy. So Timothy, chapter 6, starting in verse 3. If anyone teaches otherwise and does not agree to the sound instruction of our Lord Jesus Christ and godly teaching... They are conceited and understand nothing. They have an unhealthy interest in controversies and quarrels about words that result in envy, strife, malicious talk, evil suspicions, and constant friction between people of corrupt mind who have been robbed of the truth and think that godliness is a means to financial gain. But godliness with contentment is great gain, for we brought nothing into the world and we can take nothing out of it. But if we have food and clothing, we will be content with that. Those who want to get rich fall into temptation and a trap and into many foolish and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction. For the love of money is a root of all kinds of evil. Some people eager for money have wandered from the faith and pierced themselves with many griefs. But you, man of God, flee from all this and pursue righteousness, godliness, faith, love, endurance, and gentleness. Fight the good fight of the faith. Take hold of the eternal life to which you were called when you made good your confession in the presence of many witnesses. In the sight of God, who gives life to everything, and of Jesus Christ, who while testifying before Pontius Pilate made the good confession, I charge you to keep this command without spot or blame until the appearing of our Lord Jesus Christ, which God will bring about in his own time, God, the blessed and only ruler, the King of kings and Lord of lords, who alone is immortal and who lives in unapproachable light, who no one has seen or can see, to him be the honor and might forever. Amen. Command those who are rich in this present world not to be arrogant or to put their hope in wealth which is so uncertain, but to put their hope in God, who richly provides us with everything for for our enjoyment. Command them to do good, be rich in good deeds, and be generous and willing to share. In this way, they will lay up treasure for themselves as a firm foundation for the coming age, so that they may take hold of the life that is truly life. Timothy, guard what has been entrusted to your care. Turn away from godless chatter and the opposing ideas of what is falsely called knowledge, which some have professed, and in doing so have departed from the faith. Grace be with you all. So 
There are several things contained within this text. I have to keep finding different ways to express that idea so I don't sound like a broken record any more than I'm, I'm going to have to. But that's not necessarily a bad thing. One commentator talking about the Apostle John uh, at the end of his life and the letters he wrote at the end, he said that he wrote with magnificent monotony about the love of God. So sometimes if the material's good, it's okay to keep coming back to it. Well, he starts out, he's, he's given Timothy all this instruction about how we're supposed to live as a church, how we're supposed to be in light of the world. And then he says, if anyone teaches something else and doesn't agree to the sound instruction of our Lord Jesus and to godly teaching, they're conceited and understand nothing. They think they know better than God. They have a high opinion of themselves and they don't understand scripture. And unfortunately, it's kind of easy to fall into that trap sometimes. People will get carried away and they'll make statements like, well, I know that's what the Bible says there, but... All right, as soon as you've said, I know that's what scripture says, but... You've, you have entered into a dark path. Turn back. Don't go that way, Luke. That's the dark side. I can make that reference here. Like I say, two weeks ago, I was preaching in a congregation where that reference probably would have, have missed. There's, there's one thing that when you, when you reference pop culture, you're necessarily confining yourself to the window of time that you occupy <clears throat> and you will sometimes be in congregations whose time predates that and won't get it, and sometimes you'll realize you're older than you thought, and a lot of the people there weren't even born when what you're referencing happened. So i got to stay, too, can't be too much on the pop culture references. But yeah, it, it <coughs> excuse me, you can find yourself in a place where you're like, ah, that's, that's what scripture says, but it doesn't, you know, the real world, eh, yeah, yeah, scripture is for the real world. There's not two different worlds. There's not a world of God and then a world of the real world. There's not a Sunday world and a rest of the week world. Um, when your whole life is bound together in one piece, we talk about it having integrity. If you have a different Sunday reality than you have a Monday to Saturday reality, your life does not have integrity. That's a sad thing. They have an unhealthy interest in controversies and quarrels about words that result in envy, strife, malicious talk, evil suspicions, and constant friction between people of corrupt mind who have been robbed of the truth and think that godliness is a means to financial gain. Wow. Unhealthy interest in controversies and quarrels about words. One of the joys of studying scripture and and digging into it and digging into its cultural setting and its historical setting sometimes is understanding what's going on and what's meant by certain words. But that's always just adding insight to usually what the, the plain text of scripture is. If you begin to get caught up and think your whole doctrine hinges on specific words, secret words, you're going astray. People have built whole ministries 
on understanding the secret truths of Scripture. I used to, uh, in, in the church culture I, I first came to faith, and sometimes you would have these teachers coming in and they would talk about the deep things of the faith. You know, you have to really dig in. There's, there's these secrets in Scripture. And the, the plain stuff is more than enough. Um, James lays it out. Hey, scripture that it is pure that God approves of is this. Look after widows and orphans in their distress. You know, God has this project of restoration. That's what we're supposed to be about. We're supposed to be his agents of restoration in the world. And that doesn't depend on secret meanings and hidden passwords. And we're going to find out that, that Paul comes back to this as he ends this passage. And uh, people get hung up on their interpretations, and, and you can get fights over who has the right interpretation of this, this secret knowledge. So there's friction. You don't have that unity. And there are going to be things that cause division, because there's some things Scripture is quite clear about. Um, but sometimes people think Scripture is being clear when maybe that's more the the clarity is more in their own mind, their own opinion. But so there are there are times when Scripture draws a line. You can't worship God and another God as well. That's not an option um, that Scripture allows. But there's a lot of things that it's just not worth being fight, fighting over or being contentious about. But some people thrive on that. They thrive on interpretations, and they will publish long diatribes of thinking they are preserving the faith when they're talking about whether or not it's godly to raise your hands if you're worshiping God, you know, oh, if you do this, you're being, you're following the Psalms, so you have to raise your hands. Um, if you raise your hands in church, you're going with 19th century tradition, and you're, you're, you're not following God. That, that is irrelevant to the gospel. If you get caught up in that kind of thing, you have gone down a path. And some people think that godliness is a means to financial gain. Wow. There is a whole school of ministry. Now, God's ultimate goal is shalom, is flourishing for everybody. But um, that does not necessarily mean God wants you to be a millionaire, despite what you may have seen in popular ministries. Now, in the context here, there were people in the first century, and actually in the first century BC as well, and a little bit before that, who made their living from teaching. It was a means to financial gain for them. And you'll, you'll actually find other philosophers criticizing them. That the, one of the terms for these people was sophists, which has its root in Sophia wisdom. Um, but for them, wisdom was just a means of making money. It was, it was their nine to five. It wasn't a calling, it wasn't truth. It was the way they earned money. And Paul's saying, there's people like this. That's still with us today. It takes many forms. I can remember a, a certain ministry figure uh, several years ago, decades ago, um, bragging about being a, million, a billionaire. If you have become a billionaire solely through preaching, quote, quote, the gospel, man, you might really need to, might need to look at your heart. 
do you need a $7 million house if you are a preacher of the gospel? What is, what is your motivation in preaching the gospel? How do you find where you left your car keys if you have a $7 million house? I can barely find them in my little house. If you run an international relief ministry which lives on donations and you take a salary that's a million dollars a year, well, that's what the CEOs of major corporations in equivalent of equivalent size make. We're not supposed to be like that. We're supposed to be different. The gospel is not a means of financial gain. And that can lead, the way we structure ministry, absolutely the worker is worthy of his wages. Pastors can use a paycheck, absolutely. But it can lead to weird situations. I have a friend in Massachusetts who was formerly a pastor with a large church planting organization and who is now an atheist. And the sad thing is he became an atheist before he stepped down as a pastor, but he had a family and that was his paycheck. So he had to stay in that position, not believing it because that was the financial security of his family. So there's, when, when the gospel becomes a means of financial gain, it, it leads to all sorts of problems. But godliness with contentment has great gain. If you're pursuing the things of God and you're content in it and you're happy in it, that is very valuable. You will be immune to certain traps and snares just because you're happy with what you have. For we brought nothing into the world and we can take nothing out of it. Absolutely, we aren't born with money. Our parents may have money that they can convey to us, but we aren't born with money. <clears throat> We're not even born with clothes, which is, you know, probably a really good thing that would make the whole process messy and we take nothing out of the world when we live everything everything we you know worked for and strive for it stays behind the material things the things that carry on are, are the deeds we've done the love we've sown but we don't, we don't take any of our possessions with us. I've said before, one of the things my wife and I do when we're falling asleep is we'll watch you know, YouTube videos sometimes. And one of the kinds of things we watch are these people that explore abandoned buildings and houses. And it's, it's really amazing to see these houses that were once somebody's whole life and their family and just home like we have home but when that family's gone, it's just, it's just walls crumbling, um, you know, mold coming up. It's, it's nothing. We don't, we don't bring that with us. But if we have food and clothing, we'll be content with that. And that's hard to do. E even without being overly greedy, it's, it's sometimes hard to be content with food and clothing. Uh, over 20 years ago, when I first came to New Hampshire, through a set of circumstances, I ended up homeless and living in my car. And um, then I had the uh, great blessing of running into a guy running, going the wrong way on I-93, who totaled my car, where everything I had was and where I was living. And uh, That was a very precarious time. 
And uh, compared to that, I have it great now. I have food. I have clothing. I have a house. I have land. I should be absolutely content with that. I am just so far set compared to that low point. But sometimes it's easy to be like, oh, you know, just had a little more. I could take care of this problem or that problem. It's always for good reasons. It's always, you know, it's never that I just want a shiny new whiz-bang thing unless it has something to do with fishing. But, you know, everybody has their idols. I'm working on repenting of it or, or maybe backpacking. But, um, yeah, I mean, compared to where I was, I have it great. I should be contented with that. But we live in a society that makes contentment hard. The engine of our society is want. Now, I am not, despite what this may sound like by the time I am done, uh, preaching a sermon about dismantling capitalism. But we need to face the fact that we do live in a society whose driving force is, is money and the acquisition of money. And our economy depends on want. We have an econ economic model that depends on constant expansion. And that can cause problems because the scripture says that those who want to get rip rich fall into temptation. And you go down roads after foolish and harmful things. You see, other, you see what other people have and you start to desire that for yourself. And now, uh, so much of our popular entertainment is looking at other people who have stuff we don't and thinking, wow, wouldn't it be nice to, to be like that or to have that? Not always in terms of finances either. There's this whole problem that's grown up around social media because everybody posts their best self on social media. So you look at other people and you go, wow, look at their life. They're drinking champagne, standing on top of a taxi cab in Times Square. They must be so cool. But, you know, maybe it's not your lot in life to do that, and that's fine. I know, some of you, that's not your, your ultimate thing. But people, they, they have these perfect lives, so you can think, man, I wish I had a perfect life. <clears throat> I've had people come up to me and talk to me, um, especially the first time I was in ministry, and you'd be like, they'd be talking about their problems and they'd just be like, you know, man, why can't I just have it like X and such? One thing you learn quickly as a pastor is nobody has that perfect life. Every life you dig into it, there are tragedies that would just make you cry your heart out. Everybody is dealing with great struggles. So that, that seeing those other lives and wishing your life was that way, it's not chasing after reality, but... Like I say, we have a society that projects that, those perfect visions, and makes us want them. Our economy depends on it. But chasing that, you fall into ruin and destruction. And I love this. For the love of money is a root of all kinds of people. Uh, all kinds of evil. Yeah, it is the root of all kinds of people. Um, it is the root of all kinds of evil. It's hard to get by without money. We need money. It is the means by which we interact with each other in today's society. But when you love it, weird things happen. You begin to forget what it is. Now, it's interesting because money, you know, when God made creation, it was a good creation. Money is not part of that creation. We, we came up with money to make trading things easier. 
Now, it is part of the world, so Scripture does address it. But it's a different thing. It's not a real thing. And when you love it and you give it importance, weird things happen. The United States Supreme Court in 2010 made a decision. It was called Citizens United. And I'm not commenting on the rightness or wrongness of that decision right now. I'm just going to say it's an interesting decision because the Supreme Court's rationale in making their ruling that it was unconstitutional to limit spending in politics uh, and opening the door to unlimited spending on politics, their rationale was that it limited First Amendment rights, the right of free speech. Whose free speech did it limit? Limiting campaign contributions? The monies. It limited the, the constitutional rights of the money. When you love money, it begins to assume this life of its own. And that leads to problems. It leads to all sorts of problems. We have horrible decay in so many areas of our life that are, that are driven by financial causes. And it says some people eager for money have, have even wandered away from the faith. Because if you live the way the faith says, you know, if you, if you consider others better than yourself and you sacrifice yourself for them, that is not a means of maximum financial attainment. And so after saying that, God, uh, Tim, Paul turns to Timothy and he says, but you, man of God, flee from all this. Sometime back, I am in my own house, getting ready for the day, enjoying a nice warm shower, and there comes a blood-scurdling scream, and I know my wife is in mortal danger. So being a good husband, I leap from the shower and run to rescue her. It's a horrible visual, but uh, run in, and some of you can probably already guess what the problem is. It's a small eight-legged creature in the sink, a really small eight-legged creature in the sink. The mysterious powers of this creature, some might call it a spider, are such that they can completely paralyze my wife. Not just my wife, but several members of, her of, her, of the extended family. Sometimes, including my strapping son. So I disposed of being immune to that particular fear. Um, I'm, I'm fine picking up spiders and snakes. They don't bother me at all. Um, other things, maybe, maybe more so. But yeah, so having, having dispatched the spider, I returned to my uh, shower. But that reaction is actually what Paul intends here by when he says for Timothy, flee that. Run from that like it is a spider. That desire for money, that, that, that desire to get rich, take off like you just saw a jaguar crouching behind the tree. And I don't mean the sports car. I mean, I mean the toothy, clawy kind. Run from that and pursue righteousness. The word for righteousness there just means good things, right things, ordering things the way they should be. Chase after that. Godliness, the things that reflect God's character. Run towards trusting in God. Run towards leaning on God. Endurance, not getting tired. Develop that endurance, which we all know comes through patience. And as Steve preached, patience requires an irritant. So you're kind of supposed to chase things that irritate you. 
so that you can, you know, it's exercise. You can grow your faith in gentleness. I, I find it interesting that I say chase things that irritate you and somebody immediately reaches for their wife. That's just, that's, that's, that's gospel right there. And gentleness. We're always supposed to be marked by gentleness. We will have to say hard things at times as, as people that live the faith. We're going to have to say hard things. But they should always be couched in caring. Nobody's going to listen to you if you shout and scream at them. And the louder you shout and scream, the more they're going to shut their ears to you. Got to pursue that gentleness. Fight the good fight of the faith. Take hold of the eternal life to which you were called when you made your good confession in the presence of many. We tend to divide the world into what we're living now and someday we die and go to heaven. That's not really the biblical picture of eternal life. Eternal life is the life of the age to come, but it spills into this life. That is God's coming kingdom, but we are the advance guard of God's coming kingdom. So what says, take a hold of that eternal life. It doesn't mean, you know, grasping so that when you die, things will be good. It means bringing the character of that age to come into this, uh, into this age. You know, you made your profession in front of in front of witnesses. You said, "This is this is what I believe. This is what I'm chasing." So now, bring that into the present. And then he charges him in the sight of God, who gives life to everything, of and of Christ Jesus, who testifying before Pontius Pilate made the good confession, who went in front of the power of Rome that had the power to set him free, or put him to death. He freely said, "Yep." I'm a king, and my kingdom is not like your kingdom. But before them, I charge you, keep this command without spot and blame. Live this way. Don't compromise it until the appearing of our Lord Jesus Christ. I said before that Ephesus is going to be the, the center place of the worship of the emperor. Here, in the English, it doesn't carry the same weight, but when it says the appearing of our, it's talking about the royal announcement of Jesus Christ. You hold on till the whole world that can see that Jesus is the king with power and glory and all the pomp and circumstance a royal coronation would involve. He said, hold on to that. And God's going to bring that about in his own time. It says, God, the blessed and only ruler, the king of kings and lord of lords, who alone is immortal. What it's talking about is only God, by virtue of who he is, lasts forever. Now, we can have eternal life given to us from God. But in and of ourselves, that's not something we inherently possess. As, as uh, philosophers put it, we are conditional beings. Our being is conditioned upon there being a God who created us and sustains us. But God's not like that. He alone is immortal. And he lives in unapproachable light. There's, God is so true that as we are right now, we, we can't even perceive that much truth. No one has seen him or can see. To him be honor and might forever and ever. Except, except that we can see him because he has made his fullness known in his son. And when we look at Jesus, we can see in Jesus the things we can't see staring directly at the glory of God. 
Command those who are rich in the present world not to be arrogant or put their hope in wealth, which is so uncertain, but to put their hope in God, who richly provides us with everything for our enjoyment. You got to tell people that are rich. You may have what the world says is valuable, but it's nothing to put your trust in. And that's, that is a hard, hard thing to uh, put into practice because I know I feel better when I look at my bank statement. It's like, oh, yeah taken care of but it doesn't really represent what I think it does we think of money as security as as having value but its value is only what it's agreed upon on October 28th 1919 Black Monday that's the start of the 1929 excuse me that's the start of the Great Depression the stock market dropped 13%. In one day, $14 billion went zap. Now, where did it go? Did the country have any less railroads and locomotives at the end of that day than they did at the start? Were there any less crops in the field? Were there any less roads? Were there any less people? We didn't lose anything material, but somehow we lost wealth because that wealth was only what people agreed upon greed on it as I have friends who are very into cryptocurrencies and they talk about how secure they are and how they you know are developed are, are, are derived from complex mathematics and things but the only value they have is what's agreed upon the crypto market lost 600 billion dollars in a week well what was gone at the end of that week that was that was there at the beginning of the week Nothing but their, but their trust in it. Money's been around a long time. The first coins we know of show up as the Mesopotamian shekel in about 5,000 BC. Money's been around for a long time. But the only value it has is what people agree it has. Now, I've had other friends, good, and this used to be very popular in church circles, you can't trust money. Money is, you can't put your trust in it get gold. You can't eat gold. If, if you've got a cut, it's hard to slap a gold bar on that and make it stop bleeding. Gold itself is only valuable if people agree it is. And you can look in um, the history of Israel and see at times that it was worth all the money you had just to buy a day's worth of wheat. And that was money in gold. Gold only had the value people thought it did. So no matter how much money you have, it is an uncertain thing to put your trust in. It is a poor God. But you can use it while it has that value and use it to do good, to be rich in good deeds and generous and willing to share. And that's, that is such a good guideline, not only for money, but for anything you have. Because... Not everybody is, is, has been gifted by God with money, but we've all been gifted with something we can use. And it's never just for us. It's never just something we pull out to look at ourselves. It's always a gift to the rest of creation. God gave you gifts and talents because he intended to bless the world through you. And you can either set that up as your own little God, whether it's wealth or whatever, or you can use it to help, ever, to help the kingdom. You know, I used to, when I was younger, I used to um, 
take pride, and there's a problem right there because pride. But you know, it used to really, um, you used to really float my boat to be the small, smartest person in the room. And uh, sometimes that was only because it was a very small room and I was the only person in it. But never mind. It's still, you know, I, I was always really glad that, that, that God wired me that way. But if it's just for sitting around, doing nothing but being smart, that's a poor, that's a poor use of talent. God gave me that. God put in me the desire to teach um, for the kingdom. I... You know, that's something I had forgotten for a very long time, uh, how much I loved teaching. There was a time in the middle of my life when I really pictured my life going a very different way um, than I'd, I'd taught before, but I always considered, ah, you know, I just did it because it was something to do. And talking with my sister, I remembered that was like the first thing I really loved to do. When I was a little kid, I would arrange chairs in my room and have my family come up so I could tell them about dinosaurs. And they would have a little sign on my door that said, Facts by Jeff. Um, and she's, I was absolutely right. Yeah, I did love that as a kid. How did I forget that? So God gives us stuff, not for our own good, but so we can advance the kingdom. And material goods is one of the ways that we do that. It's not for us. It's, it's to be generous. It's to bless says, by doing this, you lay up treasure for yourself and a firm foundation for the coming age. And that's not only looking ahead. That's not only saying, oh, I want to have a good inheritance in heaven. No, that is laying down right now, living the way you expect to live in the age to come. And he finishes it. Timothy, guard what's been entrusted to you. Turn away from godless chatter and opposing ideas of what is falsely called knowledge. And here he is getting at something very specific. There is a movement starting at this time. It actually predates Christianity, but it comes into Christianity fairly early in the first century, and it will become a full-blown major problem in the next 200 years. And it was this belief that there is secret knowledge and that true salvation consists in understanding this secret knowledge. And they had this very unbiblical idea of the world. It's one we can fall into. Um, how many of you ever heard taught as a Christian idea that you're really just a soul and that someday you'll leave this material world and you'll have a disembodied you know, kind of existence in heaven? People think stuff like that. Well, I have this body now, but one day I'm going to put it aside. Eh, you get a resurrection body. God made a t material world. And he said it was very good. We had a fall. It corrupted it. But the original creation was very good. But there was this teaching that all matter is evil and that everything that's good exists on a pure spiritual level. And that some people, you're actually this little spark of immaterial light that's caught in matter. And that by knowing the right secret knowledge, and they, they would say that Jesus was a teacher of this secret knowledge, you can liberate yourself from material existence and ascend back into heaven. And this, this idea was very popular because people like being in on something nobody else knows. But it's utterly opposed to the gospel because it says this world doesn't matter. There were two schools of thought in this. One, there were people that said, matter is evil, have nothing to do with it. So don't eat, don't, don't be married, don't engage in relations with other people. You have to abstain from all that because matter is evil. And Paul addresses that earlier in this. 
And the other school of thought was, I am a spark of light. So what I do with this body doesn't matter. So I can eat whatever I want. I can sleep with whoever I want. I can do anything. Both these ideas coming from the same false doctrine. So Paul ends with a warning to Timothy. Stay away from that. Hold on to what I've taught you. Everything will be all right. Thank you.